My name is Simon Domin. I'm an associate in Stevenson Harwood's Marine and International Trade Department, and I sit in the Commodities Subteam. Hi, I'm Ben Bryant. I'm also an associate in the Commodities Team at Stevenson Harwood. So today our plan is to discuss the recent Court of Appeal decision in K-Line PTE Limited and Primins Shipping, also known as the Eternal Bliss, which was handed down in November 2021. In summary, the Court of Appeal confirmed that a standard demurrage clause in a charter party liquidates all losses flowing from a charter's failure to load or discharge within the laytime. Accordingly, in order for a ship owner to recover damages above and in addition to demurrage, they will have to prove a separate breach of contract to a charter's failure to load or discharge within the contractual laytime. While the issue arose in the context of a charter party, The Court of Appeals' decision also raises important considerations for sellers and buyers in the commodities sector, particularly when it comes to the drafting of sales contracts, which we'll discuss shortly. We'd like to focus on two issues in particular. Firstly, how can parties manage the risks of exposure to demurrage claims under sale contracts? And secondly, how can parties ensure that the demurrage provisions, which parties may wish to modify in light of the eternal bliss decision, remain enforceable? But before doing so, it'd be worthwhile outlining the facts very briefly. So the, the facts were as follows. K-Line, as uh, owner, carried a cargo of soybeans from Brazil to China on an amended Norgrain form, which included terms providing that demurrage, if incurred, was to be paid at a daily rate or pro rata. Now, after tendering notice of readiness at the discharge port, the vessel was kept waiting at anchorage for 31 days due to port congestion and lack of cargo storage space. Accordingly, Primmins, as charterer, was in breach of its obligation to discharge the cargo within the permitted laytime. By the time the cargo was discharged, it was said to exhibit significant moulding and caking throughout the stow in most of the cargo holds. As a result, the cargo receivers brought claims against K-Line as carrier under the bills of lading, which K-Line settled for $1.1 million. K-Line subsequently commenced arbitration proceedings against Primins, seeking damages, alternatively and indemnity, to recover the sums paid to the cargo receivers. The matter was heard by the High Court, and then that decision was appealed to the Court of Appeal. The main point of principle was this. What is it that Demarage liquidates? The High Court determined that K-Line's claim for, as it put it, a different kind of loss and that K-Line was entitled to recover the additional losses paid to the cargo receivers, in addition to demurrage. However, the Court of Appeal reversed the High Court's decision and determined that in the absence of any contrary indication in the Charter Party, demurrage liquidates the whole of the damages arising from a charterer's breach in failing to complete cargo operations within the contractual laytime, and not, as it put it, merely some of them. Accordingly, if K-Line sought to recover unliquidated damages in addition to damages arising from delay, it needed to prove breach of a separate obligation. Simply pointing to Primin's failure to discharge within the contractual laytime was insufficient. Now, the Court of Appeal considered, among other things, that, well, first, it would be unusual and surprising to depart from the approach that a liquidated damages clause liquidates all damages. Doing so would forfeit many of the benefits um, that such clause provides including certainty and minimising disputes. 
As such, if parties intend that a liquidated damages clause should only cover certain damages, they should say so expressly. Second, though a loss of freight was the loss found to have been primarily contemplated in previous cases, this did not mean that it was the only uh, loss liquidated by demurrage. The decision is an important one, insofar as it clarifies an area of law that, until the Court of Appeals judgment, had remained uncertain. But the decision will also have an impact on participants in the commodities sector, which we'd like to outline. The first area of focus is uh, the relationship between the sale contract and the charter party. Sale contracts frequently incorporate terms as to demurrage, but there's often a question whether the demurrage operates by way of an indemnity or gives rise to an independent obligation. If demurrage operates as an indemnity, an FOB seller or SIF buyer will have no obligation to indemnify its contractual counterparty, who would be the charterer under the relevant voyage charter party, if that party is not liable to pay demurrage under the voyage charter party. If demurrage under the sale contract is a separate obligation, then demurrage can accrue irrespective of the position under the voyage charter party. Now, whether a demurrage provision in a sale contract is an indemnity or a separate obligation is a matter of contractual construction. Courts will look to factors such as the following. Firstly, whether the sale contract was made independently of and without knowledge of the charter party and or if it covers several shipments likely to be made under different charters. Secondly, whether laytime provisions in the sale contract coincide with provisions in the contract of carriage and more broadly, the extent to which the demurrage clause from the contract of carriage is incorporated into the sale contract. And thirdly, whether the CIF seller or FOB buyer are parties to the charter party. To put matters into context, we referred to two cases where the court found that, based on the particular wording in the sale contract, there did exist an independent obligation to pay demurrage under the sale contract. First, in Holder Brothers and Commissioners of Public Works, the buyer undertook in the, in the contract of sale to pay demurrage to the seller at a specified rate. It was held that he was bound to pay at that rate, even though the rate at which the seller had to pay demurrage to the carrier was lower. Second, in Etablissement Soul SC and Intertradex, a SIF contract specified the rate at which the goods were to be discharged and went on to provide for demurrage at a specified daily rate, without making any reference to the charter party. It was held that, on the true construction of this provision, demurrage began to run against the buyer under the contract of sale only from the time when the vessel berthed, even though it might have begun to run against the seller as charterer under the charter party from the earlier time of the vessel's arrival at the port of discharge. You can see that in the first example, so in Holder Brothers, the independent obligation under the sale contract was less advantageous to the buyer than an obligation to indemnify the seller under the charter party, whereas in the second example, namely Etablissement Soulouci, the buyer's independent obligation was more advantageous to it than an obligation to indemnify the seller under the charter party. In the wake of the eternal bliss, there may now be the further issue of where the claims for unliquidated damages arising from the same breach are permitted under the charter party, but not the sale contract, or vice versa. 
where the court determines that an independent obligation exists. So parties should therefore consider carefully demurrage terms in their sale contracts. There may be advantages to a separate demurrage regime in the sale contract so that, firstly, demurrage is less onerous than it would otherwise be under the terms of the charter party, and secondly, the parties to the sale contract know precisely where they stand, rather than facing the uncertainty of providing an indemnity for disputes to which they are not party. On the other hand, SIF sellers and FOB buyers, who will be procuring the contract of carriage, should try to ensure that, where possible, any terms as to demurrage in the sale contract are on back-to-back terms with corresponding provisions in the related voyage charter party. And this is to avoid unrecoverable exposure, as we've discussed, due to uh, demurrage rates, periods of lay time, or scope of damages. The second area of focus we'd like to consider is the issue of penalties. It is likely, in the light of the Court of Appeals decision, that parties will try to adjust demurrage rates to ensure that they are sufficient to cover all losses that may arise from a charterer's failure to load or discharge within the agreed lay time. However, parties should remain alert that such liquidated damages must remain a genuine pre-estimate of losses. The sums should be proportionate to the sums which would otherwise be recoverable at common law for the breach in question. The risk otherwise is that a provision is construed as a penalty, which is unenforceable, leaving the innocent party to claim a remedy in damages instead. Now, the issues we've discussed in this podcast are non-exhaustive, and other issues will certainly arise following the eternal bliss. If you have any questions or require any assistance with issues arising in the context of demurred provisions in sale contracts or charter parties, uh, please get in touch with us or your usual Stevenson Harwood contact. We hope you have found this podcast informative and helpful.